Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. There's a press on to end the war in Afghanistan. President Trump pitched his peace talks with Afghanistan at his State of the Union address. Meanwhile, in Moscow, top Taliban leaders are meeting with former Afghan President Ahmed Karzai and a group of top regional leaders at a conference organized by the Afghan diaspora in Russia. There are fears that a U.S. deal with the Taliban would be a repeat of the end of the Vietnam War. In a piece in Foreign Policy, Anatole Levin argues that a peace deal with the Taliban is not likely to be another Vietnam, that the Taliban is ready to give America what it wants, defeat without humiliation. Anatole Levin is the author of Pakistan, a Hard Country, amongst other books, and is a professor at Georgetown University in Qatar. Good to talk with you, Anatole. Hello. Why do you think a peace deal with the Taliban would not be another Vietnam? Well, I mean, it will undoubtedly uh, be a defeat for the United States. There's no avoiding that. I mean, uh, America has not obviously succeeded in stabilizing Afghanistan, defeating the Taliban, turning Afghanistan uh, into a a successful democracy. Uh, But on the other hand, The uh, al-Qaeda in Afghanistan has been very badly hit. And uh, I'm confident that the Taliban um, will, in fact, side with America and Russia and China um, against ISIS in Afghanistan. We can be confident of that because uh, because the Taliban are already fighting ISIS in Afghanistan. You know, ISIS and the Taliban are rivals within Afghanistan. Um, So that I think the Taliban can be turned into allies of a kind in the battle against international terrorism. And I think that there is at least a chance um, that the Taliban will accept a power-sharing arrangement in Afghanistan. In other words, that they will be willing to stop short of trying to control the whole country. And I'm afraid that... uh, Oh, and I'm also... uh, I am actually quite sure that the Taliban would be allies um, in the fight against the heroin trade if, of course, the U.S. um, gave aid in compensation via the Taliban. And uh, I'm afraid that um, this is about all the U.S. can hope for now in Afghanistan, and that if the U.S. were to go on fighting for another 10 years or 20 years, it wouldn't get a better deal at the end of it. Well, I think a lot of people picture the current Afghan government uh, that the U.S. supports as just completely collapsing and the rights of women going out the window and we get uh, Taliban rule like like that was there before and, uh, you know, that wouldn't be great. Well, no, um, but the present situation is not great either. Uh, you have to remember that um, as far as women's rights are concerned, for example, uh, there have be, also been a great many atrocities against women and general oppression against women uh, across most of the areas controlled by the Afghan government um, because, unfortunately, Afghan society outside Kabul and even in much of Kabul is extremely conservative uh, with ferocious attitudes towards women's honor and the control of women. That, you know, was not created by the Taliban. I mean, that is, unfortunately, a very, very old Afghan tradition. Uh, So that, um, from that point of view, um, 
across most of Afghanistan, um, a deal with the Taliban would not, in fact, make much difference. Where the Taliban, of course, did change things when they took over was in Kabul, because Kabul was always an island of relative liberalism. Um, Well, when I say always, had been for a few decades. Uh, But I, I think that perhaps the most we can hope for there is that um, under a peace deal, Kabul will continue as such a relative island, uh, if only because um, any Afghan government is going to be heavily dependent on international aid. And if international aid is channeled through Kabul, then there will have to be you know, Afghan intermediaries to deal with. Um, the, the Taliban, when they were in power, um, were also some of them on occasions also capable of pragmatism from that um, on, on that side of things. Um, although, unfortunately, the most pragmatic Taliban leader was actually killed by the Americans three years ago. So um, that didn't do much good. I'm talking with Anatole Levin about his article, It's Time to Trust the Taliban in Foreign Policy. Coming up in a few minutes, we'll hear about the phenomenon of over-tourism. Stay with us. I wanted to ask a question about what's happening now in Moscow, because I don't think this meeting has gotten a lot of um, press or publicity, but it's pretty wild. Uh, the the Taliban are there. Hamid Karzai is there. The list of regional leaders is impressive. Uh, how does this figure into what is happening with the U.S. and the peace talks? Well, well, Russia, China, and other countries are obviously now looking to uh, an, an, an Afghanistan without American troops in future, a post-American Afghanistan. Uh, and so for good pragmatic reasons, um, they feel it necessary uh, to improve relations with the Taliban and you know, to to pursue their own path towards trying to arrange a peace settlement. Uh, what they all have similar, though slightly different, interests in this. Uh, what Russia wants above all is Taliban uh, guarantees that, um, unlike in the 1990s, the Taliban will not support uh, Islamist militants in the former Soviet Union. You know, in, in the 1990s, the Taliban were the only regime to recognize Chechen independence, for example. The Chinese are looking for uh, guarantees from the Taliban that they won't support Uyghur uh, militancy or separatism in Xinjiang. The Iranians have rather more extensive uh, needs because they need to preserve the autonomy of their their old allies in Afghanistan, the Hazara Shia um, and the um, uh, and people in Herat. Uh, but all of these countries now think that they have very good reason to talk with the Taliban. And all of them, like the US, by the way, want to turn the Taliban uh, ideally into an ally against international Islamist terrorism. Um, so in other words, they, they, they want to nail down Taliban hostility to ISIS and make sure that that continues. Well, is this something where the U.S. should be creating architecture to have this conversation about what is happening? Or is this something that's just going to happen, like this uh, this conference in Moscow? Obviously, the U.S. doesn't talk to Iran and isn't going to be assembling or coordinating some kind of diplomatic effort there. What, what, does, what, what do you think the U.S. has got up its sleeve there? Well, I mean, 
what we see over Afghanistan is that there are costs to the United States making enemies of other important countries. Um, any peace deal that is going to last in Afghanistan has to involve the support of Afghanistan's neighborhood. Um, that means uh, China, Russia, Iran, Pakistan, India. Um, but perhaps Iran most importantly, because, you know, Iran, well, you know, I mean, Iran used to rule over half of Afghanistan. It's been there for 2,500 years. Um, the idea that the United States can, you know, create some kind of settlement in Afghanistan without consulting Iran or involving Iran is, is simply fantasy. Um, but if the, if the U.S. does want to get out without humiliation and have a chance of um, leaving behind some kind of stable order or semi-stable order, then at the very least, um, the participation of Russia, China, and through China, Pakistan, because one of the, one of the most important factors here involving China is that, of course, China has the ability to bring great influence to bear on Pakistan, now heavily dependent on on China. Um, and, of course, Pakistani backing is absolutely crucial to getting the, the Taliban to stick by any deal. Are you getting the feeling that the Pakistani military thinks uh, everything is going along pretty well here, that this is so, so far a, a good process? Yes, I think they, uh, they're, they're willing to, to go along with this. They've been saying for many years that um, uh, ever since Musharraf, um, almost 15 years ago now, that, they're, they're, uh, that any peace settlement in Afghanistan has to involve a share of power for the Taliban because they simply have too much support in too much of the country to be excluded and that military victory is not an option. So, um, But, of course, um, everybody is watching and waiting at the same time to see what happens. And, and of course, the, the important thing to note about this Moscow conference is that the people who are not there, uh, at least not formally there, is the Afghan government itself. Um, and in the end, uh, well, the Taliban say they will only talk to, to America, but at the very least, you will have to get the Afghan government to accede to any international agreement. Uh, although, of course, I mean, if the U.S., threatens simply to leave and to stop aid to the Afghan government, then the Afghan government will have no choice but to um, uh, agree uh, because they are completely dependent on U.S. aid. Anatole Levin is author of Pakistan, A Hard Country, among other books. He's a professor of, uh, at Georgetown University in Qatar, and we were talking about some of the ideas in his article, It's Time to Trust the Taliban in Foreign Policy. Thanks a lot for joining us, Anatole Levin. Good to talk with you. Thank you so much. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the phenomenon of over-tourism. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The UN World Tourism Organization tracks the growth of international tourism. And I could lay a bunch of numbers on you, but just trust me, it's growing rapidly, consistently beating predictions. International tourism is one of the fastest growing economic sectors in the world. One of the negative outcomes of this is a phenomenon known as over-tourism. Elizabeth Becker is a journalist who's worked at The Washington Post, The New York Times, and NPR. She's been sounding the call about over-tourism for around a decade now. She has uh, written about it in her book, Overbooked, The Exploding Business of Travel and Tourism. Nice to talk with you, Elizabeth Becker. Oh, it's very nice to be on WBEZ. Uh, when did you first know over-tourism was going to be a thing? I was the international economics correspondent at the New York Times and um, at the at the pretty much the beginning of globalization, that is the turn of the century. And we were looking at trade, financial changes, manufacturing, all the, the, the typical things. And I noticed that it seemed that the one area we weren't paying attention to but was benefiting tremendously and growing was tourism. But tourism back then wasn't considered an industry. It was considered a hobby. So it wasn't being looked at. Whereas traveling around looking at globalization, I realized there's a lot of people here. And sometimes it's not doing very well for the people that are being visited. So that was the beginning. And when I um, I started my research in 2000, it's been 11 years, 2008, I was amazed at how much material was there and um, how much for a journalist, a reporter, it was wonderful to be able to be, you know, some of the one of the first digging that story up and and finding, as you said, the numbers are crazy. And no matter what you say, tourism is going to keep growing and growing. The strange thing about it is it's, it seems to be happening everywhere in big cities, in really remote places. Um, I wanted to tick through some examples with you. Are there some big city poster children for over-tourism in your mind? Oh, sure. Um, the classic is Venice, where um, the population before over-tourism was like 120,000. It's now 50,000 because the locals are being pushed out by tourists. It's it's criminal. Uh, the, then there is Barcelona, a newer casualty, where when I was there last year, the graffiti said, why call it tourism season if we can't kill them? They felt that <laughs> overrun. And, um, and Barcelona they, has lots of buses and things like that, tourist buses. And cruise and ships, cruise, cruise ships. ships, inexpensive budget flights. And um, another one is um, has been Amsterdam, but they are um, – Barcelona, everybody's trying to make changes, which we can get into later. And in um, Machu Picchu, overcrowded, they're making changes. And in Asia, boy, where do you start? Angkor Wat, Taj Mahal, all the great monuments, and then the cities nearby so that you will um, find yourself, can I even walk in Hanoi? You know, with the, and all of this is because um, with globalization, we had for the very first time in modern or any history, I suppose, um, the ability to travel anywhere in the world. That means open borders after the Cold War. That means transportation. And that means um, uh, affordable travel. So 
Whatever That's happened to sustainable travel? Well, there was this phenomenon that, you know, maybe a decade ago, too, that people were going to travel differently in the future and do it sustain- sustainably. Well, this is this is this is not as much a consumer-driven phenomena as that idea implies. First of all, sustainable tourism is still very much a goal, and um, it's becoming more mainstream. That's probably why you haven't noticed it, is that people are trying to put it in. But what happened was that countries, as well as the industry, thought that the way you measure success in tourism is by the numbers of people you attract and by the amount of money they spend in your country very gross figures. It's only in the last few years that people said, huh, I wonder what's that doing to the destination and the people who you are visiting. So sustainable is still there, and it's been driven by the people at these destinations who are saying, there's a limit. Just like there's so many hotel rooms in a hotel and then it's overbooked, the same applies to a city. The same applies to um, a countryside. I was just in Norway in the Arctic Circle, beautiful, barely habitable, and one village with a beautiful beach, a stunning beach, village of 13 people, had 250,000 visitors on this small little beach last year. They were overrun. It doesn't matter where where you, (laughs) as you just said, it pops up everywhere. And it's because you have a finite number of um, places on the earth and you have a population that is continuing to boom to travel. And you you have this uh, piece on the Norway beach in Travel Weekly. And yes. And it sounds like that was a, somebody named it something. You know, I mean, in oh, this yeah. digital age, if it's the best beach in the world and, and mm-hmm. on some Instagram account, suddenly you've got a, a kajillion people going to it. Exactly. This was the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful beaches in the world. Bing, it's dead. It's, it's, the phenomena has the cliche but accurate um, title of being loved to death. Um, and uh, I wanted to say something about um, Chinese tourists. How big a yes. factor are they? Uh, tremendous. Um, the reason why the only country that I spent two chapters on in my book was China, because even back then, you, when you, the population was only allowed to travel in this century because of of, of Chinese policies about people can or can't move. They were only allowed to leave their country in the last this century. And yet, they are now the biggest source of uh, foreign travelers in the whole world, and less than 7% have passports. So if you travel in Southeast Asia, you will notice that immediately. The, there are parts, uh, there are beaches from the Philippines down to Vietnam to Cambodia and into Thailand that are overrun. There's one town in um, Cambodia, a beach town that's essentially become a Chinese colony of casinos and so on and so forth. And there are places that are, are just closing themselves off to, and stopping all tourism because they're afraid they're going to be de- um, destroyed. There's a there's an island in Thailand. A, beach in Philippines, temples all over the place where they just said nobody can come in because the tourists, there are too many. And when you get a crowd, they're not going to be well behaved. I'm talking with Elizabeth Becker. She is the author of Overbooked, the Exploding Business of Travel and Tourism. And we're talking about the phenomenon that she's been tracking for over a decade now. Um, 
You know, let's talk about some of the ways that uh, cities and places have gotten some control over over tourism. I imagine this is just um, regulation in a lot of cases, um, pricing in a lot of cases, and and then you can fix that. Well, there's it's it's that boring but essential business of government, and um, from the government decides how many visas and who can come and then cities and places can decide how many hotels they're going to have and crucially nowadays how they regulate Airbnb. Overnight rentals have um, caused havoc in Barcelona again, Venice. Many cities here in the United States are really beefing up their regulations because Airbnb is is for tourists essentially takes away affordable housing and is a big cause of over-tourism in some of the uh, most beautiful parts of the city. Charleston, South Carolina, for instance, um, has tourism police that simply make sure that the Airbnb regulations are adhered to. Other ways to, to, to control it is to say, okay, you're at the Eiffel Tower. This many people are allowed every hour. If you don't have a reservation, you're not allowed on. That's in the last few years that they started that system. Or an entire country like Bhutan can say, this is an industry. We're allowing X number of people, and they have to pay $250 a day, for, which includes everything they spend. But they have to spend that much money. And we're not going to allow this country to be crowded, and we're not going to allow the crowds to change who we are. Because that's the other important thing. A culture can be distorted Disneylandified, if you will, homogenized if tourism, the industry, overtakes the local culture. And so Bhutan has that, has taken that sort of radical approach, but it's been very helpful because it's helped them develop, it's helped them with their school system in particular, their roads, etc. So there are many ways to do it, but it takes an effective government to say, we're going to regulate, we're going to decide how many airplanes can land, how many cruise ships can come, how many passengers, et cetera, et cetera. And just start figuring out what is our carrying capacity, if you will. Are there examples of places where the population affected and getting overrun by tourism has a a, a good voice in, I imagine it turns up as some in travel writing now. Uh, do, does it do they get the ear of government officials? What, 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 how do they get agency in this thing? Um, th- a lot of demonstrations, um, a lot of lobbying. The I've never, in the last, I'd say, three or four years, there have been very successful lobbying efforts in Amsterdam, in Dubrovnik, the great port of Dubrovnik, where they um, were able to reduce the number of cruise ships and spread them around, and now they're they're reducing the number of of buses. It's any other problem, but it takes a population that is pretty familiar with what those problems are and what kind of solutions they want. Uh, Sometimes it doesn't work, but mostly if you appeal to the powers that be, that's the best way. Now, um, travel writing essentially has, yes, it's given them voice, and it's also alerted the traveler, the consumer, to how she or he is 
part of the problem and maybe some solutions for them. And that's so you've gotten you've gotten uh, uh, situations where people are looking at the places that are overlooked rather than overbooked, and so going to a different place rather than another place. And and also consumers can say, I'm not going to take that many trips. I'm just going to take one wonderful trip, two weeks, if you have that kind of vacation, and and not be one of those bumblebees that goes all over the place and is um, part of the over-tourism problem. Yeah, it seems like there's almost like a selfie-like culture of tourism <laughs> these days where yes. you just go take the picture and move on. Yeah, the Instagram crowd, yeah. And um, <laughs> in fact, you see a lot of prohibitions against Instagram sticks everywhere. Did, um, has all this kind of, I mean, does, has it turned you off to tourism in a way? Well, I'm, I'm fascinated by the subject. Uh, but um, I'm old school in the sense that I don't take those quick trips. And I do um, do the things that I, I, um, I would like to see other people do. I study the place. I try to pick up some language before I go. I do a lot of preparatory work so that I know that I will be slipping into the destination's life instead of dis- disrupting it. If there's one thing you could change about tourism, what w- would it be? Cruise ships? Would it be uh, tour <laughs> buses? If there's, uh, is there something out there that you could pull out and say, yeah, we could do without that? Um, this, it's such a hard question, but I think um, there's a tie there between unregulated Airbnb and um, monster cruise ships. Yeah, monster cruise ships must be a bomb on places. Well, when you when this is part of the research, I would not have known any of this. But these big, big, big thousands, thousands of people. I think the maximum now is six thousand, and a small ship has like two thousand. And when two or three of them dock, it is truly like an invasion, and um, it changes it changes the economy, it changes the social life. When you go to Barcelona in a trip and a cruise ship comes in, you can't walk down the, the main um, Ramblas um, beautiful boulevard. It's yeah, like run as for if, cover. <laughs> it's, it would be as if um, Paris allowed the Champs-Élysées to be overrun by tourists. I can't imagine it. Elizabeth Becker is a journalist who's worked with the Washington Post, the New York Times, and NPR. She's been writing about over-tourism for more than a decade now. Her book about it is Overbooked, the Exploding Business of Travel and Tourism. Thanks a lot for joining us, Elizabeth Becker. Good talking with you. Oh, I enjoyed it so much. Thank you for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll have our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. And we'll talk about sustainable sharing with Guatemala. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. Landscape architect Julie Siegel has a connection with Guatemala that goes back to 1984. She founded the organization Sustainable Sharing with Guatemala in 2010, and it funds sustainable work in the northwest region of Guatemala. And we've talked to her in the before, and she's brought friends this time. It's going to be great. It's great to see you, Julie. Oh, thank you very much. It's great to be here. And today also because I have the energy of two amazing women. Now, tell us a little bit about your philosophy and the philosophy of the women with us today. Everybody is kind of on the same page about how to go about making a more sustainable world. Boy, you want me to talk philosophy in um, a minute. Actually, the philosophy we came up about things being more sustainable is to learn how to be in the moment and not living in the past and not totally thinking about the future. But we're talking about sustainability today in terms of what many practices we can have that do acknowledge the past and the present and are working towards a future where resources are better apportioned and available to more people. And in the past, we've had conversations about the region you work in, in northwest Guatemala, and it's an indigenous community. It's in a high altitude. Uh, Things are scarce, water, education, lots of things are pretty tough to come by, and everybody's trying to figure out how to make it. Not everybody's trying to figure out how to make it. It's like many places. Most people are trying to make it with very few resources while the system of power holds the couple of resources. The big problem, of course, is owning land, but it's become a problem of water, and that's with climate change. Right now, the fight in that region is actually for the natural resources with mining rights and hydroelectric dams. And the indigenous people, by law, are supposed to have consultations whether or not their resources can be used by foreigners, and they all vote no, but that never happens. Well, let's talk about the struggles in trying to get along and make sustainable futures. And with us is one of your friends from Guatemala who's here and going to be speaking at several events while she's here. Veronica Hiron is a co-founder of AFOPADI and a coordinating team leader for the organization. It's an acronym that stands for Training Association for Integral Development. Thanks very much for joining us, Veronica. Thank you for being with us. Gracias. Tell us a little about your organization. You've been doing it for 25 years. What are the kind of things that Afopati does? Yeah. Eh, trabajamos con comunidades indígenas en el occidente del país, en Guatemala. Trabajamos, es una organización dedicada a la, a la educación, a la formación. So we work with the indigenous people in the highlands of Guatemala. And Afopati, we work for educating them around their health and food accessibility, social justice. We also work around women's issues and around political issues. It sounds like you've got a plethora of things you've got to address. What are the really acute issues that you face? Which ones would you say are most sensitive? Ah, la defensa de los derechos indígenas. The defense of indigenous culture, the defense of land, and that includes the defense of natural resources, especially water, and the earth. What kind of projects do you do to help with the water, to help people keep their land? Mucha formación política. La tierra es de quien la trabaja. They do a lot of political activism. The land belongs to the people who work it. And historically, the indigenous people have been the ones to work the land, and it's for them. So we should defend it with our lives. Because that's the only thing that the communities have is their land. 
does it come down to defending it with their lives? What does that look like? Politicamente, hay intereses políticos en mi país, la oligarquía. You know, in our country, there's a lot of political interests, especially by the oligarchies. They have a lot of economic interests over those lands and those territories because of the richness of the water, minerales, the minerals. Pero las comunidades indígenas son los dueños originarios de este territorio. Entonces el gobierno se ha convertido. But the indigenous communities are the original owners of those territories. So the government has become the number one enemy of the indigenous people that own those territories, struggling against the government and also against the transnational companies. We have a lot of people that have become political prisoners because they're fighting against the government and the transnational companies. So now you can't even let them come into your home. You have to defend your house, your land, where you are. To be united is very important, the solidarity, and you must have a political stance that's very clear. La solidaridad y una apuesta política clara. Do you have political allies in this? It sounds like if the government's the enemy, do you have any representation that you feel is helpful to the indigenous communities. Sí, existen redes, redes de solidaridad eh, con las poblaciones indígenas, pero también eh, existen otros movimientos como los movimientos campesinos, los movimientos de So there are many organizations that are fighting for women's rights, for the indigenous rights, and we try to find a connection that will connect all of us together. So we do have allies. I wanted to ask some questions about our connection to Guatemala and the connections that you feel when you are in the United States. Because it seems like Guatemala is pretty far away and some of these issues may seem remote to people. Well, how do you feel about the connection between here and Guatemala? Mm, la lucha es global y nuestros problemas no dependen solo de Guatemala. Existe una política económica internacional. The struggle is a global struggle, and our struggles and our problems aren't only in Guatemala. There's a political and economic struggle that's international, and we all have to understand what the politics are around that in order to have tools to be able to defend ourselves in front of those politics that are really out to destroy natural resources. I'm talking with Veronica Hiron. She's a co-founder and coordinating team leader for AFOPADI. It stands for the Training and Association for Integral Development, and they've been working for 25 years in the northwest region of Guatemala with indigenous people. And I wanted you to expand a little more on the connection between us. We do have similar structures that we're battling against, but when you come to Chicago, do you feel like there is something in Guatemala that is supporting our lifestyle here in Chicago. Creo que el estilo de vida aquí tiene un costo muy alto y a uh, toda esta comodidad y lujos existe porque afuera de Estados Unidos hay muchos países the lifestyle here has a high cost because all of the comfort and the luxury that exists here, it's because in the United States, is here because there's a lot of other people around the world that's supporting this lifestyle. This lifestyle is very vulnerable because everything that you have is dependent on everything coming outside of it. And the thing that also happens is that even though we come from very poor countries, we want to adopt the lifestyle of the United States. 
And so that then also gets exported to these other countries. And so we end up wanting to become the same. We want to have the same cars, the same type of clothes, the same type of housing, the same things. And that's not development. Development is really to have a lifestyle where you have health no and desarrollo. food and water and community and dignity. Tener agua, comida, casa, educación. Eso es desarrollo. It seems like uh, we're struggling to develop a sustainable lifestyle. And a lot of people look towards indigenous people and say, well, indigenous people have something to teach us about a sustainable lifestyle. And indigenous people are looking to the U.S. and saying, wow, we want to have a, a hot car. <laughs> sí. Eh, tal vez quiero aclarar, no son las personas, no es la población indígena, ¿sí? Quiero decir que hay una política económica globalizante, ¿sí? Y I want to clarify something, because when I talk about who wants that type of lifestyle is not really the indigenous people, but there exists a realm in the political culture in Latin America, South America, that wants to mimic what the United States has, but it's not necessarily the indigenous people. Yeah, it's not a bad thing to have a car or all those other things that people want, but you want to have a lifestyle that's balanced. Sí, se trata de todos los recursos naturales, no los puede consumir un país... Todos necesitamos los mismos recursos. Tú me preguntas qué siento al venir aquí y... It shouldn't be that only uh, one country takes all of the natural resources. We all need ¿Sí? to take part Angustia. in these natural resources. Porque you ask me, how do I feel about what I've seen here? Um, no, I'm filled with a little bit of anxiety and ¿Sí? bitterness because, Porque you know, one day all the electricity is going to be gone, the natural resources will be gone, and all of this ecological, you can't stop what's been done to the ecology of the earth. It's irreversible, because the majority of the things, like the natural resources, is consumed by the rich nations. We all contaminate, everybody contaminates, but the majority of the, of the countries that contaminate are the rich countries. The question is, where does everything that you have come from? From where are we importing those? La pregunta es, ¿de dónde viene todo lo que consumimos? ¿Sí? ¿De dónde importamos todo? Porque los países que exportan, como Guatemala, ¿sí? café, azúcar, cardamomo. Everything that Guatemala exports, things like the coffee, cardamom, they go to these rich countries. Guatemala is a rich country, just like here. We have a lot of resources, but 53% of our children from zero to five years old are malnutritioned, and we call that green hunger. Nosotros necesitamos nuestra comida, sí, maíz, frijol, calabazas, hierbas, pero nuestros países se han convertido en productores de comida hacia afuera. We can't eat only coffee and cardamom and bananas. We need everything that we also grow there, but we export most of it. And our country has now been converted to exporting food instead of eating food for ourselves and growing food and eating food in our own country. The link between the United States and Guatemala is very, very strong because what we produce, the United States eats it. But the question is, in what conditions are we producing this food for the United States? There isn't an equality that exists between the United States and Guatemala and the United States and other countries. And it's true that the governments are responsible, but there's also an economic policy or climate that puts those stresses onto these poor countries that creates this type of inequality. Pero también hay una política económica global 
que la imponen los países ricos en cuanto a precios. I wanted to ask a question about some of the other things that are uh, getting globalized these days. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of hate rhetoric in our politics in the United States, around the world, and a lot of division. Does that affect people in Guatemala? Do they hear it and absorb the global hate fest that we're having? Sí. Yeah. En mi país, uh, el racismo es parte de una herencia colonial, ¿sí? Hemos sido conquistados muchas veces, primero por España, ¿sí? Y de ahí empieza... 80% of our population is indigenous, but we're dominated by 20% of the people who are not indigenous. Oh, yes. In our country, the racism has been there since colonial times. When we were first colonized by Spain, that was the first step in the hate or the discrimination against the indigenous people. So the racism comes from that structure of colonialism that's inside our government. Luego la segunda reconquista que fue la época de los liberales, donde se cambian los cultivos de producción, empezamos a ser un país productor de café. And then the second colonization came with the liberals when they started to convert our country from a country of producers to export to other countries. But my question is, who produces coffee? It's done by the handiwork of the indigenous people. So people for them are the dirty people. They're those that are uneducated. They're subhumans. Entonces el racismo es algo que nosotros decimos se mama desde los pechos de tu madre. Si tu madre es racista, va a tener una madre racista. So racism for them we call that imama. It's from your mother. So if you're born from a racist mother, you become racist yourself. So even from very little, we're taught that that the indigenous people, people who are darker than you, that they're less than you. What fixes that? Is there anything that would help? Does exposure to other cultures make that better? Oh. <laughs> no tengo respuesta. <laughs> I have no answer for that. <laughs> <laughs> what about your friend who went to France? Uh, sí, 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 es increíble porque ella es una mujer indígena que se casó con, con un hombre de Francia. This is an incredible story. I have a friend who's indigenous, and she married somebody who was French, and she went to France. And she said to me that when she got on the train, she was very scared of the people who were black or darker than her. Yeah, so she was surprised because, you know, in our country, the black people are, are a small minority, and they're in the north, so we don't have very much contact with them. But when she saw the black people on the train, she felt afraid. And where did that come from? Where did these ideas that she had come from? She realized that it was like from Hollywood. So the images that come to us are that black people don't work, they're taken care of by the state, they have a tendency to be more violent, and this all came from Hollywood movies. So when she arrived in France, she said the same thing. Oh, they don't work, they rob people. She had the same type of discriminatory thinking. Tiene todo un pensamiento hacia la cultura negra, negativo, pero ella en Guatemala sufrió la misma discriminación. But in Guatemala, she suffered from the same discrimination against her. It's very easy to change from being the oppressed to the oppressor. 
You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. I'm speaking with Veronica Hiron. She's a co-founder and coordinating team leader for Afo Padi. They work with indigenous people in northwest Guatemala and have been doing it for 25 years. And I wanted to talk about a few of the events that you're taking part in while you're here in Chicago. The first one has to do with permaculture and using global permaculture methods to enhance local stewardship. And our interpreter here today is Anna Maria Leon of Permaculture Chicago Teaching Institute, and she's taking part in that as well. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Anna Marie. Thank you. For people who don't know what permaculture is, what is it? How does it apply to development in Guatemala? Well, permaculture means permanent agriculture. It could also mean permanent culture. It was a term that was coined in the 1970s by Bill Mollison and David Holmgren in Australia. And it really is taking the indigenous traditions, you know, their long histories, but they do it along climate. So what is the climate in Guatemala? The way they do agriculture isn't the way that we're going to do it here because it's a temperate climate, whereas over there is more of a tropical climate. And so in permaculture, we talk about how we can address agricultural issues according to what works in your region, in your climate zone. But it's not only about agriculture. It also talks about social structures, building, how do you build more sustainably political structures and human systems. All right. Building more sustainable human systems is basically permaculture. So you guys will be having this conversation on Monday at Kilbourne Park, uh, Friends of Kilbourne Park Organic Greenhouse. That's on Monday, February 11th. Yes. That sounds great. And the Permaculture Chicago Teaching Institute, it's a new thing in Chicago, and you're going to be taking up classes and doing the things that permaculture people do? Yes, exactly. We have something called a permaculture salon every month. We have different topics, and people can come um, bring potluck. It's five bucks. We have great conversations for three hours about what's going on in our community, what we can do, what actions we can take around things that are going on in Chicago. We also have events, and we'll be teaching permaculture how to make your own garden sustainable in the city, bringing speakers in like Veronica and other international speakers and local speakers. That sounds great. Do you have a a website or a Facebook page for people? Yes, it's www.permaculturechicago.com. All right. And there's also going to be an event at the Urban Agricultural Livestock Expo, and this is going to be a a Spanish-speaking event with Veronica. Veronica is going to talk to people about raising livestock and things. Yes. Chickens, I believe chickens. And And that's uh, Saturday, February 9th at Livestock Expo. And that's happening on the south side at the Southside Occupational Academy, 7342 South Hoyne. And that's something that's been going on six or seven years, the Agriculture Livestock Expo, and it's got a big website and everything. And then finally, on Saturday, February 16th, you're going to be at the Special Climate Resilience Panel going on with Sustainable Sharing in Guatemala and Julie Siegel. And uh, what's going to be going on there, Julie? We're excited about all of Vero's events, but especially the panel on February 16th. That'll be at Neighborspace, partly because we have so many partners that we have to thank. There's Permaculture Institute, Neighborspace, Advocates for Urban Agriculture, Kilbourne. But this is going to be a very interesting event where we really want to try to bring people together. Veronica's going to speak about conditions in her country. Then we're going to have a film that we've translated about something very progressive that they're doing up in these communities. They have sustainable markets 
markets that are sort of outside of capitalism, where people are growing things and trading. And then we're going to have a panel discussion with local people who are involved in um, solar and water progressive methods. I think the timing of her trip is very important, coming on the heels of our polar vortex and of the government shutdown, because that speaks to what she was bringing up two things, how vulnerable we are with our lifestyle. I mean, if we lose electricity for a day in these conditions, we're in real trouble. Uh, Very different in Guatemala, where there's a different form of permaculture. So the questions are about examining our own vulnerability and what our lifestyle is based on. She talked about the bubble we're in and how we affect so much of the rest of the world, both in terms of the material things that they export and produce for our lifestyle, but also the lifestyle... I don't know, bubble that we export. Yeah, and the Climate Resilience Panel is once again on Saturday, February 16th from 2 to 5 p.m., and that's at Neighbor Space 445 North Sacramento Boulevard. People can get more information at sustainablesharing.org and look under events there at sustainablesharing.org. And thank you all very much for joining us. Uh, Julie Siegel from Sustainable Sharing with Guatemala and Thanks very much to Veronica Hirone, co-founder of Afopati, who's in Chicago for these three events. And nice meeting you, Anna Marie Leone from Permaculture Chicago Teaching Institute. Great to meet you all. Thank you very much. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll hear about Michael G. from Michael G. Smith. He's the director of the new film Rendezvous in Chicago. It's a story of a relationship in three acts. And director Michael G. Smith will talk with film contributor Milo Stalik. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.